I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Welcome to the Broken Book Podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda and Sam, and we're ready again this week to appreciate, dissect, criticize, defend, and generally nerd out about the Bible. The Bible, it's one damn complicated book. For starters, like, is it even a book at all? Uh, Is it just random books thrown together? There are, what, 66, I think, books in the Protestant Bible? And, you know, some individual books have dozens and dozens of authors, and there are probably hundreds and hundreds of authors and editors and redactors of the entire text. Well, the traditional or conservative argument is that the Bible all works together. That there is what is called a perspicuity of scripture, which means that every verse fits with every single other verse into a greater whole. Now, I'm going to call bullshit on this old doctrine. The Bible is clearly not unified. There's some really obvious historical quibbles. The small things, for example, uh, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah has a different list of Persian kings in the book of Daniel. But those kind of historical differences don't really make any major difference. What really counts are the massive thematic differences in the Bible. For example, the major theme of the book of Proverbs is that wisdom makes life better. The major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom doesn't make life better. Those books are opposite books. And ironically, and kind of beautifully, they're both attributed to the same author. Perhaps the biggest, most influential disagreement in the Bible is that in some books, justice comes from punishing sins. In other books of the Bible, justice comes from forgiving sins. Opposite doctrines. Now, the typical progressive liberal alternative is to consider the Bible as a library of different books, which all need to be read in their complete historical context as if they were written completely by human authors. And I actually find that maybe a little bit problematic, um, because the Bible is the foundation of religious belief. If we place the Bible entirely within a historical context, it's so much harder to find value and purpose and make meaning out of the Bible. The Bible's just more useful, can help more people, if we can see it as a word of God and not just the blatherings of a bunch of dead guys. So I love the diversity in the Bible. As you've noticed, most of what I've talked about in these podcasts have been comparing, contrasting how one doctrine talks to and yells at another doctrine. But if I want to find God as a central author of the text, I need to find some kind of unity. And this bugged me for a while, so I started looking for some kind of key, some concept that I could apply to the entire text, a spiritual or moral or philosophical, you know, or literary or theological constant that unites the entire book together. And there are so many candidates. And of course, there isn't just one key, one central theme of the Bible. But for the sake of simplicity, to make Bible reading easier, I have identified one candidate that I really like. So, here is my proposal. The central theme 
the primary point of the Bible is irony. According to a quick Google search, irony is a noun, which means the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite. So, an example of irony is that you stay up so late studying for a test that you accidentally sleep through the test, and therefore your studying made you do worse on the test. That's irony. That's what the Bible's about. The world doesn't work the way it actually works. God's world fundamentally contradicts the human world. In heaven, every day is opposite day. And it always has been in every part of the Bible. What is dark can be light. Death can be life. So we need to drop all of our expectations. The world is not as it seems. And we see this in the first book of the Bible, as we've already talked about in Amos, is the day of the Lord, the day that God makes everyone happy. That's the opposite day. The day of the Lord is a day of God's wrath. Amos's entire book utilizes this irony. In First Isaiah, we see a theme called eschatological reversal, which means that in the end days, God will make everything the reverse of what it used to be. God will flip the world, and wolves will be able to lie down with sheep. Lions will be able to lie down with calves, and they're all led by this little kid. Um, and by the way, that doesn't make sense, because you know wolves eat sheep, lions eat calves, and both wolves and lions eat little kids. This doesn't make sense except from a divine perspective, except after the eschatological reversal when God flips everything. That's when Isaiah declares that swords will be turned into plowshares and the world will finally find peace. Then moving on to Deuteronomistic history, we find the great shepherd King David coming from this very weak family. He's not the glorious heroic king people expected. And in fact, this is a theme throughout the prophetic and you know, narrative literature of the Bible is that the prophets and leaders are often the people who are weak and bad public speakers. They're not who we would expect. Um, and as you get closer to the exile, you find prophets preaching that you know safety and justice will come through destruction and defeat and death. Happiness is going to come with a lot of hurt. Now, that's not a pretty message. It's probably not a healthy message. It's probably not a holy message. But it's definitely an ironic message. And then we get to Second Isaiah at the end of the exile. And he is the king of irony. His text is just so witty and so sarcastic. It's like a dry comedy routine, except it's not remotely funny. Like, Cyrus is declared the Messiah. But that doesn't make any sense. Emperor Cyrus is the emperor of Persia. The Messiah is the epitome of what it means to be an Israelite. The notion that a foreigner can be Messiah is absolute nonsense. And that's why God loves it. Because God, in the Bible, adores absolute nonsense in the form of irony. And Isaiah shows that the most glorified are the people who show the least glory. There's this servant. He's despised and rejected of mankind. He's, he's some schmuck with no stately form or majesty. And he dies hated by everybody. But God declares the servant great and gives him glory. 
Because God is opposite God, and he doesn't see the world the way the world sees itself. And as the OT continues, some of the Bible's great heroes, you know, Jonah, Joseph, Daniel, Esther, they show their loyalty and citizenship to Israel and God by helping out other nations. Now, nowadays, it may sound all sweet and brotherly, but back then, you were loyal just to your own tribe, just to your own nation. And, and then you show your glory by taking over other nations. The idea that someone like Joseph or Daniel can be glorified by being a really good advisor to a foreign king, that's just bizarre. And, well, let's move over to the New Testament now. Um, just the idea that the Messiah is not a king at all. He's not a warrior. He's not a politician. And he fucking dies. That breaks all expectations. Jesus is an opposite Messiah. The Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are all about irony and eschatological reversal. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the people who aren't actually blessed in this life. In the book of John, the irony is taken further by exploring the mystery of the Incarnation, where the powerful, almighty God, who can't even reveal himself in physical form, suddenly becomes human. The Word becomes flesh. The most powerful thing imaginable becomes the weakest thing imaginable. A corpse. In the epistles, various authors explore God's very topsy-turvy, ironic way of combating sin, which sometimes involves hurting the sinless to help the sinners, which doesn't make much intuitive sense. And in fact, I think it's often a pretty crappy doctrine, but it's definitely ironic. And finally, you get to Revelation. And Revelation digs really hard on the irony. God is the Alpha and the Omega, both the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, God is the opposite of himself. God is essentially irony incarnate. And you have this image of there being a scroll on top of a throne. And you need a great hero to open the scroll. And they declare that the Lion of Judah is coming. This great, powerful, mighty, king of the jungle character who truly exemplifies godly might. And then the lion comes. But the lion isn't the lion. The lion is a dead lamb. Blood-stained, weak stumbling across the room and the crowd addresses the lamb blessed be the lamb who is slain to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power because opposite day is complete the lion is the lamb the eschatological reversal in isaiah is consummated yum and I do see this theme of irony across the Bible. Now, there's still lots of diversity in the Bible, still lots of disagreement, but it's nice that there's this one theme that people keep on coming back to and coming back to and coming back to. 
So what does this irony is key mean for Bible followers? Well, I have three points. First, it should affect how we approach scripture. If the central key, the central point, the central premise of the Bible is the world is not how we think it is, that the world is opposite, then biblical literalism makes absolutely no sense. Because literalism says things are exactly how they seem. That we must just take the Bible's direct, objective word on everything. But the Bible's point is saying we shouldn't take the world objectively because the real world, the true world, the heavenly world is opposite of this one. So that means if you read a passage in the Bible and hate it, you want to say the exact opposite of it. That's just as biblical a response in some ways as accepting the Bible. Second point. We should never accept the world for how it is. We should never just glorify the status quo. I think Christianity has made that mistake a lot. We just say, oh, God created this way, therefore it is good. Well, yes, but God's image for the world God wants to actually create is this opposite world, not the world as it currently is. So we should be very, very cautious around certain forms of deism and classical theism and pantheism, which just worship the universe as it stands, as it is, unchanged. Because that's not the universe the God of the Bible invests in. And finally, third point, and this is the most important point, I think, is we should give greater glory to what is weak, what is overlooked, what is ignored in our society. Obviously, this has tons of political implications. We must always think about the people who are most harmed, the people who have the smallest voice, the people who are ignored, the people who are erased. They're the ones who are blessed. They're the one God is so directly invested in. Because God makes a bias very clear. God is not unbiased. God is in favor, an advocate of those who are suffering. And, okay, I'm just going to admit it. This has been a really, really, really rough week for me. It's been a rough week for a lot of people. A lot of people are having it worse than I do. But this election is killing me. It's killing me on the inside. And I'm struggling trying to figure out how to be an opposite person. How to be a biblical person in the face of of, of this Trump election monstrosity thingy. And... I'm trying to look at culture and see what's accepted, what is normal, what we've all embraced and be opposite to that. And, well, I guess one thing I can't stand about the Trump campaign is that it just broadly painted its opposition as evil. Clinton was evil. Clinton supporters were evil. Other countries were evils. Minorities, different groups, evil, evil, evil. Just this small-minded black and white morality and we need to fight this and the best way to fight it is to approach a trump presidency with nuance we should praise what is praiseworthy so our voice sounds stronger when we reject what is awful if trump wants to be angry and fearful of everything then we show love and compassion to everything and that ironically includes Trump. 
people are not good or bad. People are good and bad. And I'm, I'm going to say something nice about Trump. I'll start now. I thought Trump's acceptance speech was gracious and grateful. Mr. Trump, I am not proud of you as my next president, but I am proud of the speech you gave there. Mr. Trump, try to be that man when you're in the White House. You have done some terrible things. Frankly, you are a misogynistic sexual assaulter, and that bugs the living fuck out of me. That being said, a misogynistic sexual assaulter stopped the Cuban Missile Crisis. Another misogynistic sexual assaulter passed the Civil Rights Act and, and the Voting Rights Act. And you know what? Be a better person, Mr. Trump, and we'll try to notice. We'll try to see the good that you can bring. You know why? Because that's more respect than you would have ever given a Hillary Clinton presidency. And we need to find more respect and nuance and fight the fear that's currently pervasive in the world. And that's how I'm trying to move towards eschatological reversal, where the lions, lambs, and Democrats and Republicans can all lie down together again in some lovely opposite world paradise. But for now, I'm just going to try to find good wherever I can and to fight the fear and hate by being as gentle as I possibly can be. God bless. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with clouds that no prayer can get through. You have made a scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees.